What first pops in your head when you hear the words Tudor England? Maybe you think of Henry VIII and his six wives. Some may think of the many movie, book, or television show adaptations that have arisen from this time period. Others may think of Elizabeth I and her decades-long rule over England. Whatever you think, there's no doubt that Tudor history is still a topic that fascinates people to this day. But how can anthropology and archaeology help us learn more about Tudor England? When we learn about Tudor history, we often focus on the major players of the time period, but rarely do we discuss the average person's life. Today we'll take a look at how clothing, paintings, text, and more can help us interpret everyday life in Tudor England, while examining the material culture, social organization, religion, and politics of the time. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm Emily. I'm Katrina. And this is The Anthrophiles. Alright guys, so today we're talking about Tudor England. Before I delve into it, what do you guys know about Tudor England? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> Nothing. Really? Yeah. They were major. Oh, Tudor, Tudor houses. I know what they look like. Oh. Is that re- related? I'm not really talking about it, but if you want to give a little, like, oh, speech. No. Because. What do they look like? Make Tudor houses in The Sims. <laughs> and my awesome. friend's college, Loyola, Maryland, is also very Tudor. My cousins went to Loyola, Maryland. Yeah. So did mine. Tudor they architecture. They did not. <laughs> <laughs> Your cousins did No, it. they didn't. Why are you lying? <laughs> okay. It's my podcast. Anyway, Emily, I know you knew something about Tudor England because... I did? Because you, you listened to that musical. Oh, yes. <laughs> that very famous musical, Six, who, which I haven't seen in person, so it's kind of hard to tell who's saying what, which character is saying what, so it's just vibes at this well, point. I'm going to teach you how. Like, I'm gonna teach some you of them died, some of them lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then hopefully That's all I got. this podcast can convince my mom to buy me tickets to see it. <laughs> well, hopefully your mom you're will buy me a ticket too. <laughs> Okay. So before we like go into the cultural anthropology side of Tudor England, I want to go over a quick history of it so that way you kind of have a frame of reference for what we're talking about. All right. So what was Tudor England? It was an English dynasty that lasted from 1485 to 1603. And there was, okay, so Tudor England, like the dynasty of it, started with Henry VII, who was the father of Henry VIII and the grandfather of Queen Elizabeth I. So before Henry VII took throne, there was a civil war going on with England between two families, the York family and the Lancaster family, and it was called the War of Roses. And, you know, they were fighting over who was in power. And the war ended when Henry VII married Elizabeth of York, which formed a union. They weren't fighting anymore because they were both in power. So when we think of Tudor England, our brain usually lands, I feel like, on Henry VIII. I don't know. Could you, like, do you guys have an image of him in your head at all? Just okay. like, old guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he was, he was a really big guy with red hair, and he had a bunch of wives. I didn't know he had red hair. He did have red hair, and that's where Queen Elizabeth I got her red hair from. Wait, is that the song with all the wives? Yeah. Okay, I know who he is then. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and he, fun fact, he used to be, like, really handsome and attractive when he was, like, younger, and the ladies were just fawning over him all the time. I think Henry Cavill plays him in, like, that Tudor show. Oh, wow. And he looked like Henry Cavill. Well, I know what show I'm watching (laughs) Then he got into a jousting accident, and his leg had pus coming out of it and it never healed so he wasn't exercising anymore so he got like really obese and just and his leg was like smelly because it was so infected but he was still for how long for like forever like the the latter half of his life 
my god. And he was still He was still getting the ladies people. because he was the king of England. Got it. So, so I feel like, anyway, that was, sorry about that tangent. So I feel like when people picture Tudor England or they think of it, like he's kind of like the figure or the icon that most people like think of immediately. And he is so famous because he had six wives and you probably have heard the rhyme, like, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Yes. So even though like this specific section we're about to delve into isn't necessarily anthropology i just wanted to get the six wives out of the way so it's we can take the elephant out of the room of it and then we can focus on the anthropology side so he married six ladies catherine of aragon anne boleyn jane seymour anne of cleves catherine howard and catherine parr but his entire reign was overshadowed by his desperate need for a male heir so that's why he kept remarrying people was because he needed a male heir to carry on his legacy So first he married Catherine of Aragon, who was from Spain. They were married for 20 years, but she could not provide Henry with a male heir. She had a lot of, like, miscarriages. She had a daughter, Mary, I think it was. And, like, he was very frustrated with the fact they didn't have a male heir because if he can't have a male heir, they can't take over the throne. The throne's susceptible to, like, other people coming in and trying to take it. So he was married to Catherine of Aragon. And in Catherine of Aragon's court, there was a girl named Anne Boleyn, who Henry had his eye on. Because Anne Boleyn was, like, young and pretty. I have a question. Yeah. What is, like, a court? What does that Okay. Mean? So it's kind of like a group of ladies that just follows the queen around. Kind of like okay. her, like, cheering squad. <laughs> for, like, lack of a better description. And I'm not a historian <laughs> at all. But, so that's kind of what that was. So he was really into Anne Boleyn. But he couldn't marry Anne Boleyn because he was married to Catherine of Aragon. And at this point, England was associated with the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church would not allow King Henry to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. But King Henry wanted to be with Anne Boleyn so badly that he broke away from the Catholic Church, formed the Church of England, so he could be the head of the church and then say, it's okay for me to divorce Catherine of Aragon. Now I'm going to marry Anne Boleyn. And Catherine of Aragon went to a nunnery, and she lived a miserable life. So then he was married to Anne Boleyn who was Elizabeth I's mother, so like Queen Elizabeth, red fiery hair, Anne Boleyn is her mom. So her becoming queen was super controversial. A lot of people did not want her to be queen. A lot of people supported Catherine of Aragon. They thought that Anne Boleyn was kind of like manipulative, trying to sneak her way into the ranks of being a queen, which was like partially true. A lot of the times history paints Anne Boleyn as kind of like a homewrecker? Yes, thank you. That's a good word. Like a homewrecker, like she was trying to worm her way in and ruin everything for everyone. And But then in like later years, she's kind of become more of like a martyr who like died for her country kind of thing. So it's like an interesting, like people look at her in different ways. And I think she's an interesting figure to study, but we don't have time to go into that. Basically, what happened was she was not providing Henry with a male heir either. She only had Elizabeth, a daughter, and I think she had a son, but he passed away really soon afterwards. And Henry was like, I got to get rid of her because I need a male heir. So what happened was he accused Anne of incestuous relations with her brother and treason. There were no incestuous relations with her brother, just to be clear. And, and he beheaded her. And I think she might be, like, the most famous wife for that reason, because her story is kind of the most She crazy. did show up in that movie, Spencer. Oh, my I'm gosh. Sure. She did. You're she right. She did. <laughs> That's crazy. Didn't you say... I'm so sorry to interrupt you. No, go for Didn't it. Didn't you say there was another movie about her that was, like, she did do, like, the incestuous things with yeah, her Yeah, I watched a movie called The Other Boleyn Sister. 
wasn't good. No. <laughs> or it wasn't good or historically accurate, which so it was a two thumbs down. Anyway, after Anne was beheaded, Henry married Jane Seymour very shortly after the execution. It was like the day after. And Jane gave birth to a male heir, which was good, but she died 12 days later. She's deemed the true wife of King Henry because he chose to be buried next to her after he had passed away. So she's deemed like the real queen of England during this time because she could provide a male heir. So after Jane died, Henry married Anne of Cleves. He needed a wife after Jane. Henry saw a painting of Anne and he thought that she was like gorgeous in this painting. She was beautiful. So he was like, I want to marry her. They brought her over from Germany to marry him, and he saw her, and he was like, you do not look like oh, your no. painting. Oh, no, he got catfished. Yeah, he got catfished. Wow. Um, and he was like, she's too ugly to they, marry. You don't look like your profile that's, picture. That's exactly <laughs> no. what happened. So then after that, they got married, but he was like, I can't do it. You're not what I expected. So he divorced her, and she just lived a happy life in court for the rest of her life. He was like, I'm going to divorce you, but you can still hang around if you want. So she did, and she just kind of... He decided that that one was like a him problem? Yeah, like that was on him, not on okay. her. He was like, it's okay. <laughs> you can hang out. So if there's any wife that you want to be, it's Anne of Cleves. Got it. So she was like his friend for the rest of her life. So after he divorced Anne, he married Catherine Howard. They were married 19 days after Anne of Cleves' marriage was annulled, and Henry was 49 at the time, and Catherine was about 18. About a year after they were married, it was revealed that Catherine was having an affair with her old music tutor. I remember that song. Yeah, that's a good one. It is. That is a good song. It's a bop. Henry Mannix. So Catherine was stripped from her title as queen, and then she was beheaded for treason. Because if a queen had sex with someone who wasn't the king, it was considered treason. And finally, Catherine Parr, she helped kind of clean up the Tudor family reputation because it was not doing good after all these marriages. And she restored some order in the court, and she helped the Tudors appear as a close-knit family. And she ensured that Mary Tudor, who was Catherine of Aragon, the first wife's daughter, and Elizabeth I were in line for the throne. And Catherine outlived Henry. So good for, good for her. her. That. So those are the wives. Do you have any questions, complaints, comments? I don't think so. I have a question. Yeah. Okay. My question is, I think it was Jane mm-hmm. who provided the male heir. Yeah. So why did he keep going after that if he got a son? Oh, because he just wanted a wife. Oh. Yeah. Now, well, did these go. did these women want to marry him because they could be queen, even though he was, like, looking a little rough yeah, with, like, a smelly be, leg? Yeah. <laughs> you would be so powerful, and your family would be so powerful. So even if maybe they didn't want to, their family was definitely pushing them to, like, mm-hmm. to take the throne because, you know, power is status, and you want as much of that as possible back then. So the reason that I discussed the wives so heavily is because it gives you a background regarding how much political turmoil there was at the time. While people were living their daily lives, this was the political backdrop. So it's kind of like, you know, we're all living our daily lives, but there's also like a war in Ukraine going on. There's also a pandemic that we're still trying to pull through. There's also, you know, the hearings for the January 6th insurrection. So it's kind of weird when you look at history and like you think about how People are, like, living their average, everyday lives, going to class, going to work, watching their kids, but there's all this crazy stuff happening at the same time. 
So from the time Henry VII was in power to the time Elizabeth I passed away, there was a lot of change happening in England. With Henry VII, there was a significant power struggle and civil war between the Lancaster and York families. Then Henry VIII takes the throne, and he literally creates a new church, he can't secure a male heir, leaving England's future as a big question mark. And then finally, you have Elizabeth, who is the second woman to ever rule England on her own, and she is really bringing in a new, progressive, prosperous era for England, and her rule lasted a really long time. So after Henry died, there was a bit of turnover and struggle for the throne, but ultimately Elizabeth I landed it, and she became known as the Virgin Queen because she never had kids or was married, and she liked to claim that she was married to England. She made England very prosperous and improved quality of life during this time. So these are all kind of like the major points to learn during history class. You're learning about the big power plays, the political moves, the wars, the power struggle. But you don't really learn about how everyday life functioned for a Tudor citizen. So that's where the anthropology is going to come into play. Through the lens of social and cultural anthropology and some archaeology as well, we can better understand the social constructs and the life of Tudor, of Tudor England for the average citizen. So let's learn about Tudor England for the average everyday person, not for a queen, not for a king, not for someone in the court, just someone who was like a farmer or a merchant and they were just trying to get by. They weren't worried about getting beheaded because they had incest with their brother, right? Okay. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So in the article, what did Tudor England look, smell, and sound like? Historian Amy License mentions that the human experience cannot be understood in its entirety while the daily and mundane are excluded. What do you guys think this quote is trying to convey about studying humans? I feel like when studying humans, it's like you want to look at more of the majority rather than just who is in like the top, because that's not how everybody lived. You're missing such a large part of like history or anthropology or just like knowledge if you exclude all those people. Right, like you're going to talk about society as a whole, but not understand the members of that society. Exactly. So you have to look at the smaller picture. Precisely. So we often learn about wealthy people, the ruling class, but what about the lower class or the middle class? What did life look like for an average Tudor citizen? And how can you compare it to that of a wealthy one? So I wanted to begin this exploration into Tudor social class with something called sumptuary laws. Have you ever heard of sumptuary laws before? I have not. It sounds familiar. Can I give you a hint and you can try to take a guess of what they were? Okay. A lot of it has to do with fashion. If I were to guess, it's just like people not allowed to wear certain things if you're not of a certain class. Mm -hmm. I'll second that. That's pretty much it. So basically from this website called Six Wives, sumptuary laws, also called the statutes of apparel, were passed to restrain or limit the expenditure of people in relation to clothes, food, furniture, and more. So these laws basically dictated what kind of material goods a person could enjoy based on their social class. And it would even dictate something as small as what color clothing you could wear. So do you have any thoughts on why these laws would be put into place? I mean, it makes people very visible. You know what class you're in if you can actually see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a school uniform. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. So basically, it was to control the population as much as possible. So when Henry VIII was in power, a new middle class started to rise. It was like a lot of merchants, people that weren't farmers, but they weren't nobles either. So they had a little bit more money. So the middle class could afford fancier clothing. And now that commoners were dressing like nobles, it could be hard to distinguish who was in what class. And Henry did not like that. 
So, by telling them what they could wear and could not wear, it put a stricter distinction between the classes. Most of what we know about Tudor fashion comes from portraits, because many actual pieces of clothing from that time period are not left over. In the same vein, we don't know much about what the common person wore, because they didn't get paintings done of them, so we know a lot more about, like, the nobles and the royalty and what they wore all the time. So some strict sumptuary laws determined what colors and style of clothing people could wear. For example, only those in royal court could wear purple, but Henry's main colors were red, gold, and black. And this enforced hierarchy and authority, and the acts of apparel prevented a common person from imitating the court. So if you think about kind of the social meaning of that, like trying to control people and making sure that they can't copy what you're doing to dictate your position in social class. How do you think this would have affected everyday culture in Tudor England, the strict divides between classes, and then do you think we still see that strict divide today? Yes, to the second question. I think we still see the strict divide, but it was probably a lot more visible because now... (laughs) This is like a weird comparison, but I feel like now we can get like dupes of things. Like you mm-hmm, can buy mm-hmm. anything on Amazon that's a recreation of something designer. And most of the time people don't know the difference. Mm-hmm. So people can blend in a little bit more now, but back then, not so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I feel like even comparing it to be on, being on campus and stuff where it's, it kind of creates that like tension between people because mm-hmm. it's like well maybe you see somebody like drive by in a new Mercedes and mm-hmm. you're like oh they have a new Mercedes so there's like, no I do <laughs> my 2009 super there's no reason for that tension but mm-hmm. like just being so visible and like you seeing it it's, oh well like that person has that yeah so it's like easy to kind of like fall into that yeah like clothing and material goods still have such an effect on mm-hmm. like class and society today and it like can show how wealthy you are or how wealthy you are not like one time I was wearing headphones with wires attached to them and someone on this campus who doesn't go here anymore but they called me broke and I was like okay and you're like I don't know you like that <laughs> but, wires Sarah really yeah listen, yeah <laughs> I have airpods now okay she's moved up in the world but it's also if you look at the sumptuary laws from back then it's okay if you're in this social class you can't wear these things it's kind of almost like the reverse now because if Kendall Jenner walks down the street in a pair of Crocs, suddenly everyone's wearing Crocs. I saw, remember that happened with Vans? It did. Like Vans, you know, $55 sneakers, mm-hmm. and then suddenly all the kiddos on Instagram saw somebody famous wearing Vans, mm-hmm. and they were like, oh my gosh, this new shoe, that shoe has been around forever, and you better stop it because they're <laughs> going to raise the price of them. <laughs> oh yeah, I saw that. As an ex-Vance employee, that was that was interesting. To see. Yeah, <laughs> but then it's you also see it with Katrina. You said knockoff brands. It's you know you can get a real Gucci belt, but a lot of people have like fake Gucci belts because you're trying to emulate like the wealthy upper class as much as you possibly can. Gucci belts are out now, just so you know. You know, I was just trying to think of an example, but <laughs> God, Sarah, thanks for the heads up. Okay. You're even behind on your I'm knockoffs. Just, I'm keeping you up to date. So then now there's so many, like, reproductions and copycats of, like, actual, like, designer brand clothing. And I was thinking about how anthropologists and historians might look at, you know, paintings from Tudor England or, you know, like a real dress from colonial America or something like that. And they'll use that to kind of, like, learn and inform about, like, the fashion of the time, the social and cultural, like, stuff going on at the time. But how might 
the constant like knockoffs and reproductions and also just the complete abundance of clothes that we have today how would that affect how an anthropologist would study fashion today and how it relates to culture and society do you have any thoughts about that my god stuff changes so much Mm -hmm. there's things in my closet that like were popular a year ago that aren't popular anymore yeah so it's it's interesting how fast it changes and also it depends on where you live and how much money you have too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that still plays a factor, I feel yeah. like. And even within the US, it changes by where you live, but I guess cross continents, it does too. I remember I met someone from Spain and they were like, oh, yeah, you wear vans? We used to wear vans a couple years ago. It's, you know, not really in anymore. Oh my gosh. I was like, oh, you guys are, must be so far ahead of us then. Like, <laughs> so it, it definitely if, uh, would affect their studies because it changes so fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it must it must change faster now than it did back oh, then with yeah. like social media and everything. So it'd be really interesting to have a study on even just like the new stuff that comes out at Target. Mm -hmm. It's like we were in there the other day and like claw clips are coming back Mm -hmm. and like you have flower clips in your hair right now. (laughs) Like those were in when we were like little Mm -hmm. and now they're all coming back and it always seems like, you know, even Target or Shein or whatever, like always has the newest stuff like before you even know that it's popular. Yeah. So that would be really interesting. Because yeah. I feel like if you were like an archaeologist or an anthropologist or fashion historian and you were holding like a dress from 1760, you could be like, this dress is from 1760 and I know this because so, so, you know. Mm-hmm. But then if you were holding like a shirt from Target from like, like 2010, <laughs> yeah. it could probably just as easily be from 2020 and like you wouldn't, yeah. there, you know, like there's not like any distinct difference. So like I wonder how that would play out in the future in terms of like anthropology and culture and how it relates to fashion and all that kind of stuff. That you can only be like this hair accessory is from December 2019 yeah. and then it was <laughs> no longer in fashion. Or it was popular in the year 2000 and now it's popular yes. in the year 2022. Yeah. <laughs> So I just thought it was interesting to kind of start off with the sumptuary laws because it kind of it gives you an insight, even though it's about one specific thing, like with fashion and material goods, it kind of gives you insight into how the whole rest of their society functioned in a way. So now I want to talk about Elizabethan life slash Tudor life. So Elizabethan life refers to the time period that Elizabeth was queen, but that kind of gets lumped into Tudor life because the Tudor era was from Henry VII to Elizabeth I. So lumping that together and I also just want to credit I listened to a History Chicks episode which is a podcast that I like that talked about Elizabethan like daily life so that's basically where I got most of my information from just want to credit them so we talked a little bit about the like the social organization of Tudor England how there was a new emerging middle class there was the very poor people and then there was the very wealthy nobles and then we talked a little bit about their fashion and the sumptuary laws and stuff like that so how do you think this notion affected attitudes towards social organization in Tudor England oh my gosh I forgot to give you a, a piece of information that would help <laughs> me answer that question <laughs> okay so During this time, people believed that everyone had been preordained by God. So you were born into a certain social class because God wanted you to be in that social class. I feel like the rich people made that up. (laughs) (laughs) Poor people would never say, well, I guess this is God's plan. Some of them did, though. But but there were definitely ones who were like, this can't be it. So basically the reason that the king or queen was king or queen is because God wanted them to be king or queen. And basically the king or queen was like an extension of God on earth. 
Except when Henry beheaded them. I was thinking about it. Like, how would those attitudes of God is putting you in this social class for a reason or in this position for a reason? That might affect people, like, social organization because people would support the idea that poor people were destined to be poor and wealthy people were destined to be wealthy. And you shouldn't be able to climb the social class or you shouldn't help those struggling in difficult situations. Because it's like, if you're wealthy, it's, oh, well, that person's poor because God wanted them to be poor. So why should I help them kind of attitude. So let's talk about the lower class in Tudor England. Right before Elizabeth took power, there were massive food shortages throughout Tudor England. So people who had been farming for generations no longer had an occupation and they needed to find a new life because they couldn't farm anything. So there were floods of new poor people and they were put into two categories, the deserving poor, so that would be like children, sick people, the elderly, and the undeserving poor, people who stole and robbed and were beggars, you know. That's the attitude that they had. There were also migrants roaming the countryside who needed work, and people, like wealthy people, didn't have any sympathy for these migrants because they were jobless, and it was kind of like illegal to be jobless at the time. You could be jailed, whipped, or even killed in some certain situations. So with this, like, mindset of, oh, the poor people, they need to, like, what are they doing? Like, they need to get a job. They don't deserve help. With that mindset, do you see that at all reflected in our society today? And given what we know about Tudor England, how do you think this collective cultural mindset came to be? (laughs) I definitely see it today. (laughs) There's people that say they have no sympathy for people who, what's the word, where they hold up signs in the street Mm -hmm. for money. There's a word for that. I don't know, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so people who hold up signs for money or people who are unemployed, mm-hmm. they're always like, oh, those people collect unemployment. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're lazy. They don't want to work. Like welfare queens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you hear a lot, just, oh, just get a job. Yeah. Like, well, pull like, yourself sure. up. <laughs> yeah, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. It's like, how you, you don't do have that boots. when you don't have boots. Yeah, no boots. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so... That mindset we kind of still see today sometimes, which I thought was like an interesting comparison between the two, because even though we've progressed so much, we also remain like the same at the same time. And you can also kind of, even though this definitely affected lower social classes way more than it affected wealthy social classes, you still kind of see it with people like Anne Boleyn, because she was like kind of a social climber. She was viewed that way. She was trying to get with Henry. She came from a slightly less wealthy noble class and they saw her as a social climber and that kind of mindset transcends social class. So even if you're in different social classes, like the collective like zeitgeist ideas of the time still kind of remain the same throughout. So by 1592, Queen Elizabeth initiated a poor tax because she said society had to help and take care of the poor and give them jobs. So if a poor tax was implemented by Elizabeth, how do you think the poor tax changed people's perception of helping the poor? I mean, if it's the queen doing Mm -hmm. it and the queen is supposed to be an extension of God on earth, I feel like they'd have to just accept it Mm -hmm. because basically God is saying you need to help the poor people. Yeah. I was going to say the complete opposite, but I actually (laughs) do agree with you. I think I'm more so thinking from like today's mindset of, oh no, like now I'm forced to to help the poor. And that's like a lot of the times what people say now, oh, I have to pay taxes for people to just use it all up. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Paying for others. I think from what I was reading, it seems like it was a little bit of both. 
like some people were like well if the queen says it so it shall be but also like queen elizabeth was like one of the first queens to rule england she was a female a lot of people weren't happy about that she was the daughter of anne boleyn who people still did not like even though she was like long gone so it's like what gives this woman the power to tell us that we have to help poor people when like we've been doing fine without doing that for so long so if you were poor during this time you probably lived in a thatched cottage with no windows and a hole on in the roof instead of a chimney you ate bread and cheese rich people didn't like cheese it grossed them out i don't know why i know but isn't that crazy maybe cheese was just different bread and cheese is like a fancy like (laughs) charcuterie snack now and occasionally you would eat some meat if you were lucky you foraged in the forest for other plants you drank ale but it had a much lower alcohol content and like kids would drink ale too because drinking water was pretty dangerous at that time hunting was considered to be for the nobility so you couldn't hunt or your hand would be cut off or you could hunt maybe a squirrel or a rat on the side in secret for a delicious meal. It's like the Hunger Games. It is like the Hunger Games. Katniss in the woods. And women, basically, your only option during that time was you had to get married or you would starve. Now, a lot of the times, like in this time period in different countries, if you wanted to be like single, you didn't want to get married, you would join a convent. But you couldn't join a convent in England. Do you guys know why? We talked about it a little bit. Is it because the Church of England didn't have convents? Yeah, because they broke from the Catholic Church. So it was the Church of England. There were no nuns anymore. You were really screwed if you were an unmarried woman who didn't have a father, a brother, or a husband to take care of you. So then you would have to go to the streets and beg, and then you'd be considered like the, what was it called? Like the undeserving poor. So women couldn't live on their own, like I said. So how do you think this cultural norm and the fact that Elizabeth was queen at the time, an unmarried queen with no kids, kind of coexisted? It's kind of a cultural social paradox. And do we see anything like that today? (laughs) I like asking that question. (laughs) But do you know what? Because it's, oh, if you're like a normal woman, you couldn't get married. You couldn't, like you had to get married if you didn't, you were... I mean, the queen is the queen, Mm -hmm. right? And she's, like, very, very wealthy. Mm -hmm. So she, I feel, can kind of do whatever she wants because, like, she can take care of herself. Mm -hmm. But, like, when you're in, like, the lower class, it's not like you can fall back on the wealth that you have because, like, you don't have anything. Yeah. I second that. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was interesting, though, because it's, like, the royalty, like, sets, like, the precedent for the time period. Mm -hmm. So it's if Elizabeth is able to do all these things. Because that was a pretty big deal, that she didn't get married, she didn't have kids, that she was ruling England by herself. And then, but you still see in the lower social classes that it's not acceptable to be that way. And I think you still kind of see that today. Like, I've seen stupid BuzzFeed articles, but it's still interesting to think about what's cool when you're rich, but not cool when Mm -hmm. you're poor. And people will say things like, you know, like living out of a van, something like that. Like you see like like, van life, like van life kind of thing when you're rich, right? Yes. It's it's so cool. What I always say is, is people like to cosplay like they're poor. Yes. (laughs) There's this guy on TikTok, I think that is living in this tiny little New York City apartment and people hate him because they figured out his parents were paying for it and that he, and he like does all this thrifting and how to get stuff for a bargain and he's really from a wealthy family and they pay for everything. Yeah. So the people like to cosplay like they're poor. Mm -hmm. I have seen a lot of stuff like from BuzzFeed where it's like, Mm -hmm. 
wealthy people have ruined thrifting because now you'll go to a Goodwill and like a shirt will be like $25. Mm-hmm. That's not yeah. thrifting. They resell it on Depop and it's Y2K t-shirt. And it's, it's like, like a Jonas Brothers t-shirt. Yeah. And it's like $50 and so, you have that as a kid. And you're yeah. like, oh. It's the free Planet Fitness shit. <laughs> yep. Perfect. Um, I just thought that was interesting to think about. And again, it's still, you still see it today. So everyone went to church on Sunday. You'd be fine if you didn't go. Some people were still upset because the Church of England broke away from the Catholic Church and people still wanted to be Catholic. So Elizabeth and, you know, and Henry would enforce that by forcing you to go to church. If you didn't, you'd be fined. And that's just another way to control people. And people were not happy about it because they didn't like the Church of England. So by 1597, there was Act of Relief for the Poor, which was spurred by mass starvation among poor communities. And poor communities had to be given food and assistance and by this time it was like slightly more accepting to be like helping out the poor and making sure that like they were taken care of you know I don't know how effective it was you'd have to ask someone that really knows about the topic about it but I guess you can kind of see over the years like the change in social attitude towards the lower class which is now going to bring us to the middle class so population growth in cities and towns opened up the ability for people to take up specialized trades. So, you know, like a shoemaker, a publisher, a merchant, you have a specialized skill that's more than just farming or like raising cattle. And you can use that skill to make a little bit more money than you normally would. So then this new idea, because, you know, before we had like the you can't change your social class, like you're born into what you know. Now there's this new idea of if you worked hard, you could change your fate. And you even see that with famous people from this time, like William Shakespeare. His father started as a glove maker, and then by the end of his life, he became the mayor of Stratford. So these people, these middle class people, were kind of trying to emulate the wealthy noble class as much as they could. So they would hire maids to work for them, to cook for them, which you wouldn't have if you were in a lower class. But mostly merchants made up the middle class. They lived in apartments above their shops. Boys went to public schools, which were relatively new at the time, from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. Oh you might as well just live there. That's boarding school at that That's point. That's true. It's like, imagine <laughs> having to go home, like, the commute. <laughs> just, no. You, like, you have you. to walk. So merchants would have lived in busy cities to sell as much product as possible. And, you know, as you may have heard, I feel like a lot of people talk about this. Like, these cities smelled horrible. Why did they smell horrible, guys? Well, too reasons. many people mm-hmm. not showering. No plumbing. <laughs> yeah. No hygiene, no plumbing, mm-hmm. nothing. Just poo in the streets. Yes. There was another reason why, though, oh. that I'd never heard of before. So, Elizabeth, the queen, made it a law that everyone had to eat fish on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. She was just messing with people. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Here's why. The Navy was the main supplier of fish during this time period. So... If you bought fish from the Navy, you were financially supporting the Navy. You could be sent to jail for three months if you ate meat on a Wednesday, Friday, or Saturday. And the constant eating of fish contributed to the infamous Tudor England smells, in addition to human waste and no bathing, which also played a big part in it. So what does a law like this tell us about what was prioritized in society during this time? And how do you think a law such as this was viewed by different social classes? basically like you have to support the economy right mm-hmm. and you have to support your country but i don't know how people would necessarily view it yeah yeah what i guess it just says supporting like the crown is more important than supporting people like, in your own social class yeah I, I just feel like people generally throughout history don't like to do what they're told to do mm-hmm. 
which, you know, that makes sense. Fair enough, right? (laughs) If you were poor and you could barely afford to put food on the table in the first place and now you have to eat fish on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. I'd be at the pond with my fishing pole. (laughs) You can't hunt, but you can't hunt. But what about fishies? (laughs) You're you're screwed. And then I also was, because, you know, the wealthy social class might be like, oh, it's so great of Elizabeth to be supporting our Navy like that. But then the lower social class is, oh, my God. We literally can't afford to support the Navy. (laughs) How are we eating fish today? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know if it was more expensive to do that than buy just, like, regular meat or just have your bread and cheese? I don't know. That's a good question. But, like, I think that you had to eat fish on those days, though, where it's we could have just had a dinner of bread and cheese, but now we have to have fish as well. So like we talked about before, the middle class tried to copy the wealthy's fashion, which horrified the wealthy, because how would you know what social class would be? I don't want to talk to a poor person. My God, the horror. Be horrible. And like we said, sumptuary laws dictated who could dress in what. So how do you think <laughs> the emergence of a middle class disrupted the social norms of Tudor England? And do we see anything like that in American history or today? My favorite question. (laughs) (laughs) I think for them, it must have, like, really blurred the lines Mm -hmm. between, you know, rich and poor. Because if you have the ultra-wealthy and then the ultra-poor, it's, like, very, very easy to distinct. But then when, like, a middle class comes up and it's kind of, like, they live well enough that you could maybe, like, mistake them Mm -hmm. for being you. Yeah. Like, that must have been really threatening Mm -hmm. to the wealthy people, like, not wanting to lose their status. Yeah. I think, yes, we've seen that in American history, Mm -hmm. because I feel like as a place develops and changes throughout time, there's going to be changes in social status and how people are organized or classified. So when the middle class came about here, it was like, oh, no, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what do we do? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was a very similar trend. And I was even just thinking about, if you think about it today, like, you think of the wealthiest people in in America or the world, and they're wealthy because, you know, they have a big business like Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook. Ew. (laughs) I hate all those companies. Or, you know, like a famous actress, a famous singer, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're born into a super wealthy family that has had money for generations. But in recent years, you kind of have seen people, I know it sounds silly, but like influencers getting famous from the comfort of their own home, and suddenly they're millionaires, and they're like able to socialize with, you know, that like upper Hollywood elite, that like business elite, and the lines start to blur a little bit more about who can attain that like level Mm -hmm. of stardom and wealth. I do remember... And it was everybody that was kind of upset about it, which is really interesting. When they had some TikTok stars, like, host the Met Gala. Yeah. Where, like, the Met Gala, like, you're supposed to watch it on TV and Mm -hmm. watch these rich people dress in, like, fancy outfits made by, like, the best designers. And, like, you're just sitting out. But suddenly, like, we're all upset Mm -hmm. that, you know, a TikTok star that could have been you Mm -hmm. is now hosting the Met Gala. I feel like that's been happening since Vine, too, and and YouTube stars when they enter the sphere of... Met Gala and award shows people get so mad Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I was also going to say I think the lines are blurred for the lower classes too because I feel like people can be really struggling but no one would know Mm -hmm. because they're not living completely below the poverty line or they're not completely homeless and then you have people like those people go to school with the same people whose parents make six figures but those people are not the one percenters either. Mm -hmm. So there's like this whole blurred spectrum of wealth and lots of gaps between, but still blurry. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So 
Moving on to the wealthy class now. So the nobles, royalty, all those people. So we talked about the sumptuary laws, right? I'm still talking about fashion. They loved their fashion so much. Why do you think that they loved fashion so much? Why was it so important to the upper class for the sumptuary laws to be in place? And why is fashion still important to us today? And how do political views and current events influence fashion then and now? You're supposed to be telling us stuff in this (laughs) three-host show. (laughs) That's a lot of questions. I'm sorry. Okay, can you answer one? (laughs) It's like first grade. Just start with the easy one. (laughs) Well, like you said, fashion is the easiest way to tell people apart. Or like your looks are the easiest way to tell people apart. So I think that was important to them because it was a status thing. Mm -hmm. This is like probably not the correct answer, but it does pop into my head a lot. Nobody had anything to do. If you were wealthy, (laughs) what did you have to do during the day? It's It's not like like you had to work. It's like, do you want to go? (laughs) Do you want to go watch boats today? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Promenade. You just walk around. You have nothing to do. So it'd be really exciting to like get a new outfit and, you know, walk it around the town, Mm -hmm. show everybody. Yeah. Like or the form of entertainment. Was, they were so bored that they l- cared about being different from other people. And what were the poor people doing? So we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was also just thinking fashion helps you express yourself more. And then we still see that today, obviously, with fashion. You know, Katrina's wearing a Justin Bieber t-shirt. Like, I, I, I know that she saw Justin Bieber in concert last night, you know. You threw me under the bus. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a bleeper. <laughs> Since day one. (laughs) No, not really. But But yeah, and then, yeah. It helps you learn about people by what they're wearing. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to take this opportunity to talk about what women wore during this time period. I'm not going to talk about men because their outfits are boring. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Seems like yeah. you have a skewed perspective. <laughs> so How many layers? Oh, get ready. You want to count them for me? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You guys keep tally. Okay, so what would a noble woman wear in a typical day? And I don't want anyone, and by anyone, I mean my sister Grace, who's like a fashion historian snob, to get mad at me if all of this is incorrect because I tried my best, Grace. Okay. <laughs> Women on a typical day would wear, in this order, stockings. And shoes. That's what you put on first, which sounds silly, but once you have the big dress on, you can't you can't put the stockings on. So that would go on first. Then you wear a chemise, a long white nightgown. Then you have a petticoat, which would be quilted if it was winter. You would have a farthingale, which gave your skirt shape and was structured for ideal silhouettes. Then you would put on it wasn't really a corset, I don't know what it was called then, but it was like basically a a corset but you know it wasn't like squeezing you as tight then you would have a bum roll which was tied around your waist to make your skirt and booty look full then (laughs) then a partlet a sleeveless bodice which covers the corset a kirtle which is the main underskirt then you would put on your gown after your gown you would put your sleeves on sleeves on dresses were separate they would be tied on or buttoned on And then oftentimes you would put on a white collar around your neck. And at the start of Elizabeth's reign, the white collar was more subdued. And by the end, they had those big, giant white collars. So that's it. How many layers is it, Emily? It was either 12 or 13. If you count the shoes, I counted the shoes. 13 layers. Yeah. But if not, then 12. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Katrina. So, you know, women had to wear all these crazy, like, super layers, ornate dresses all the time. 
So Elizabeth liked to dress in very feminine looks, so that meant you couldn't expose your arms or your legs, because that was considered scandalous and not, like, classy and feminine. But you know what you could expose? I... <laughs> you tell me. Your chest. Sometimes necklines on gowns would be so low that your whole chest would just be out because women were like proud of it. They'd be like, good for them. Check it out, you know? So I just thought it was interesting how she was viewed as a really strong leader during the time and obviously after as well. But she still liked to look feminine. And she's recorded, there's this big famous battle where she was leading her men into battle. And she said, I know I have the body, but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. So she wanted to be taken seriously like a man would be, but she still wanted to maintain her femininity while being the queen of England, which I thought was kind of cool and interesting. And do you see that as like an issue for either female political leaders, female businesswomen today, that like balance of being seen as feminine, but also having power and knowing what you're doing at the same time? Yeah. So if you wear a pantsuit, then people are like, oh, you're not ladylike enough. And I feel like this is 2022 and people still say this stuff. I don't believe it, but I'm just saying examples. Or when they wear something too revealing, it's, oh, well, you're not very professional. It's a politician. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a whole thing for yeah. women in politics. <laughs> I mean, true. I do think women, I mean, obviously, are judged so much more harshly on the way they present themselves. There's even a poster in one of the buildings oh gosh, here. Oh, right. I forgot about that. And I don't know whose office it's on, but... It's like this super outdated, like, what to wear to a job interview. And it's like the same girl, just in a different outfit. And it's, oh, look, her nails are pink, so she's not (laughs) professional. Whoa. Uh Or Or if she has red lipstick on, they're not going to hire her. Yeah. (laughs) That's literally what it is. And it's, it's, it's not gendered. The title isn't gendered. It just says what to do for a job interview. But it's just talking about women. And there's maybe like one bullet point about, like, Men should wear nice shoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Or, oh, you shouldn't wear heels. Yeah, like sensible flats for the job interview. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's not great. But, yeah, I thought that was interesting. So then, as much as Tudors loved fashion, they loved food as well. And cookbooks and recipes can kind of be like archaeological fact, like pieces that we can use to see what they ate. So a lot of people think wealthy tutors did not eat vegetables, but back then, many of them, what, what we refer to as veggies, were referred to as herbs, so that kind of gets confused and lost in the sauce sometimes. So they did have a wide-ranging diet that included vegetables. They even ate salads, but they were called salets, and Elizabeth's favorite salad contained onions, violets, and cucumbers in an oil and vinegar dressing. They avoided cabbages, beans, and peas because they caused furious vapors. and there's this one story (laughs) there's folklore that the earl of oxford (laughs) once farted in court so loudly (laughs) stop (laughs) he he became so overcome with embarrassment that he moved to the countryside for seven years (laughs) he exiled himself poor guy and when he finally returned to court elizabeth saw him and she said, oh, Oxford, I'd forgotten that fart. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, but I just remembered it. <laughs> oh, so wow. what this tells us about anthropology is <laughs> people are hilarious throughout yeah. history. It's true. Now, Elizabeth also traveled a lot to make a personal connection with her subjects, which is things that kings and queens didn't really do back then. Like, they wouldn't visit common people. Not that she'd be, like, shaking hands, but she'd, like, go through a town and be like, yes, I am the queen and you can see me. 
And it was a great honor to host the queen, but it could be, it could leave you bankrupt as well if you didn't watch yourself because people would go all out to impress her. And some people even built whole castles just for a two-night visit. And I thought this was interesting because you can kind of compare this to how presidents and presidential candidates will tour across the U.S. today to make a connection with people, to shake hands, to hold babies, that kind of thing, and appear like an average person. So how do you think this affected perception of Elizabeth during the time? And do you think that the upper class agreed with these actions? I feel like maybe the upper class wasn't too jazzed about it because they didn't want to be associated with the poor. Mm -hmm. From what, like, you've told us about, you know, the differences in how they dress and whatnot. So to see your queen, Mm -hmm. you know, drudging it through, quote-unquote, like, the poor part of town Mm -hmm. might not strike your fancy. But people also didn't really know much about royalty or what they looked like, only from word of mouth, right? So there wasn't a lot of information out there. So this was probably the first time those people met her or even knew what she looked like. It's not like they were getting paintings and posters of Mm -hmm. her. Yeah. So. But yeah, and I think that's kind of partially why she had such a like impressive and long rule is because she like went out and did those trips. And you kind of see it where it's, you know, like Joe Biden shook the most hands in New Hampshire and that's why he won those primaries, like that kind of thing. So just interesting to think about. For rich people, what they did for fun, I just want to talk really quickly. They loved to dance, especially Queen Elizabeth. They hunted, they played tennis, they participated in fencing tournaments, they did chess, they did this thing called bear baiting, which is when a bear would be chained to a stake, and trained dogs would just attack it until the bear died, or until the dog died. Great. That's a fun one. They had too much time on their hands. Yeah. (laughs) And then they also loved the theater, which, this is like Shakespeare's time, so they loved going to the Globe Theater and seeing Shakespeare plays. And this, I'm going to kind of try... And spin that into the next episode where I'm going to talk about Tudor archaeology because we're going to talk a little bit about Shakespeare in this one. And this episode was kind of just to warm you up and get you acquainted with Tudor life so we can talk about Tudor archaeology next episode. And that's all I got for you today. I feel warmed up. You feel warmed up? Good. I'm quite toasty. I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for a full list of my sources, go to the link tree in our Instagram. We would like to give a special thanks to Professor Reedy for editing this script and supporting this episode. Music is Find Your Way, found by Emily from the YouTube Free Music Library. Cover art was made by Katrina using Canva. Also, special thanks to Rynette Shefu, our producer and editor, and David DeRoche and the QU Podcast Studio for producing this podcast and making it possible. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and find us on social media as The Anthrophiles on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time.